Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, June 15th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. Well, guys, it's been another week of shitty news here in the U.S. and really across the world. Um, I've taken to binge-watching The Handmaid's Tale, so you can see how I'm coping with things. Um, I'd rather move on to more beautiful news, and we're going to be doing that today. But before I dive in, I want to thank those of you who continue to support the show by visiting www.patreon.com slash talknerdy. This week, I want to thank Timothy Glover, Mary Neva, Michael Gaucher, David J. E. Smith, Charles Payet, Ulrika Hagman, Christopher Pitts, Brian Holden, Dudas Infinitas, Squally Gelati, and our newest patron, June. Thank you guys so very, very much. All right. I'm really excited to talk to you about this week's show because it is one of beauty. This week I got to sit down with, well, not not in person, as you know, but um, virtually I got to sit down with world-renowned National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori to talk about his newest book, The Photo Arc, One Man's Quest to Document the World's Animals. So I think we should just get right into it. What do you guys think? Yeah, I thought so. All right, without any further ado, here he is, Joel Sartori. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I am really excited to talk not just about um, the newest book, The Photo Arc, One Man's Quest to Document the World's Animals that was just put out um, with National Geographic, but also The Photo Arc as a project and all of the amazing work that you've been doing in your um, in your photography career that also has so much crossover with important conservation work. So I have to ask, before we dive into anything else, have you always been a photographer? Was that always your first love? Oh, you know, I, I was always fascinated with geographic wildlife photographers' work. I mm-hmm. didn't know that I'd work for a geographic, you know. Um, I kind of went through college and changed majors a bunch of times. Ended up in journalism because it didn't require math or chemistry. <laughs> and um, and ended up, uh, you know, working for a, my college newspaper and then a newspaper in Wichita, Kansas. And then met a photographer named James Stanfield at a traveling photo seminar. And he gave me a recommendation to send my work in. And that was in the late 1980s. And um, yeah, I've been with Geographic about 30 years. I'm pretty much a product of National Geographic now. Geographic through and through. So they've really been the outlet. Like, are you, I mean, and you don't have to get into the specifics, but is it like a deep kind of contractual relationship or is it just that you're so deep in the family that this is the, you know, this is the outlet that you want to work for? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a geographic guy. I bleed yellow. You know, I love that. Oh, I love that. They've more recently become, I think, a close family for me, probably only within the last 10 years as I've been Mm -hmm. doing different television series with them. But yeah, there's it it feels like home when you're working with with Nat Geo. Yeah, and And, they're above reproach. I mean, I did 30 stories as a field photographer for them. I never once had anybody give me some agenda or tell me how it was gonna be or what I was supposed to do. They just let me be a journalist. I love that. They spoil you. They ruin you for working anywhere else. (laughs) And of course, they are the epitome of, you know, wildlife photography. They're the epitome of like natural photography. Were you always focusing on wildlife, even from the beginning? 
Well, even at the beginning, at the beginning, I always cared. And I think my first story for the magazine was on uh, the reintroduction of Southern bald eagles mm -hmm. uh, through captive breeding program at the Sutton Re Research Center in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. But, but I did a lot of general interest stories, human interest stories to start mm -hmm. because that, that was the work that was available. But uh, Kathy Moran was my first editor and she's the editor I worked with far away more than anybody else. And she was nat natural, their natural history editor. So we got along well and um, we did a lot of stories together until about 17 years ago. Or uh, The first 17 years was was all that. And then Oh, I guess 14 years ago or so, I started the photo arc. So, so that, and I've worked with her on that as well quite a bit. So they've been very, very supportive the whole way through. And so that kind of transition to the photo arc, was it um, a slow and steady thing where you were doing it sort of on the side or was it, okay, today I'm going to switch gears and this is going to be a hundred percent of my focus? No, it was, it was kind of a slower thing. So what mm -hmm. happened is, I did all these stories in the field for geographic for the geographic magazine, like the Albertine Rift of Uganda, wildlife there. I did uh, Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique and, and wildlife in the United States, a couple different stories on the Endangered Species Act, a story on the National Wildlife Refuge System. And, um, and then my wife got breast cancer. This has been about 15 mm. years ago. And, um, and she was basically down for nine months minimum with chemo and radiation. And she made it through. She's fine today. It's been 15 years ago, but I was home for a year with, and I just took care of her and the kids. I didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. So during that year, I, I looked around quite a bit just thinking about what to do. I was 42 at the time and um, I'll be 58 here this summer. And I thought, well, I could keep doing magazine stories being gone all the time but they're not really changing the earth and saving the earth as fast as I'd like. It's got to be something else. And I thought about the majority of the animals that I thought were going to go extinct. Mm -hmm. I, I had parents that really cared about nature and, and uh, instilled that in me and got me a book on extinction when I was a kid, or at least had a couple chapters on extinction. And I thought about, I've thought about that since I was a boy and I put it all together with these animals I'd seen on these various assignments that were too small to warrant magazine coverage on their own. They weren't tigers or gorillas. They were minnows and darters, <laughs> yeah. things that lived in streams, freshwater mussels. Um, and I thought, you know, there needs to be a vehicle to tell the story of these small animals that are really imperiled. They live in muddy water or high up in trees or in the soil. There's just no way of getting at them and seeing them. Unless you do them on black and white backgrounds, really, uh, just to be able to look them in the eye with no distractions. And the black and white backgrounds give them an equal size. You know, the mouse is the same size as an elephant in these pictures. A tiger beetle is the same size as a tiger. Right. So it, no it's context great, around it. Right. It's a great equalizer. No size comparison. So as my wife, Kathy, started to get better... I went to the Lincoln Children's Zoo and did a, did some portraits of some of their animals. I think that's about a mile from my house. Mm -hmm. The first one was an animal called a naked mole rat and um, and then some poison dart frogs and pretty much did everything that they had on black and white backgrounds and then moved on to the Omaha Zoo 
and then Kansas City, Des Moines, Sioux Falls, Denver, places I could drive to in my Prius as she got better and better. And then I started doing hybrid stories where I would do a story on amphibian decline. We'd show scientists working in the field. We'd show amphibians uh, killed by chytrid fungus in the in the high Sierras in California. And, and then we would also do studio portraits. So we did a mixture for a while, for a few years of uh, field, field photography combined with studio photography mm -hmm. and the portraits. And then now I just do portraits. That's all I do. So, so it was a, it was a gradual thing and, um, you know, didn't know it would turn into this, but I'm glad it did. These, these portraits are simple. They read quickly. Uh, we can tell the stories of these animals and boy, does geographic help us get them out there to the world. You know, we're grant funded to do the project through geographic and, and then they take that work and they put it into their archive and get it out via books, exhibitions, uh, on the web broadcast. Well, just the web, their Instagram following is more than 130 million right now. Oh, I so, know, it's amazing. <laughs> so this is actually a great time to be in conservation because we can reach the world and, um, and really affect outcomes uh, in terms of helping conservation organizations raise money, save species, uh, besides just profiling species. It's, it's not just supposed to be an archive where we document what we squander. You know, it's supposed, yeah. to, it's supposed to stop and reverse extinction as much as we can. So, um, yeah, we, we keep going. We crossed a big milestone last Friday with our 10,000th species was Friday. Wow. Guinea, which is a small little wild cat, smallest wild cat in South America, lives on the west side of the Andes, had a place called Fauna Andina in Chile. Um, and it's the only place in the world that really has captive Guinea that are breeding. And they had this cat there that was the only one that's been hand raised. It was an orphan. So it's super friendly around people and vocalizes the whole time. It's the only time anybody's been able to to have a cat that vocalized and and so it's kind of the Rosetta Stone for this species. And they study it, study, well studied this cat. And, and um, we were able to publish its vocalizations for the first time on Friday to the world. And that's pretty satisfying, uh, too. So come a long incredible. way from a naked mole rat in Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you said at the very beginning, this was sort of a confluence of wanting to be home with your family and support your wife through her illness, combined with this real kind of advocacy, maybe even activism in conservation. And of course, now it's such a big project. I mean, the photo arc, you know, by definition, the name of the photo arc means that you're you're trying to capture and document, but also, like you said, help to encourage a reversal of this unfortunate fate of all of the world's animals. But of course, there are more than 10,000 animals. Right. There are. There's a couple million described, <laughs> maybe maybe eight to 10 million on the way. Um, and we're just doing really the animals that are in human care, like at zoos, aquariums, wildlife rehab centers. Um, we're doing those because it's a manageable number. And also because we can't really do this much in the wild. Mm -hmm. We go out, we've gone out with some bird banding groups that catch birds and we photograph them before they're released. But, but um, uh, really, it's we need to work with captive animals that that are at good zoos where there's abundant, abundant attention and care. And we figure the world's accredited zoos and aquariums, wildlife rehabbers, captive breeders, we figure they have about 15,000 species total. 
Okay. And that's a manageable number. It's taken 15 <laughs> years to get to 10,000. It doesn't take, sound like a manageable number. <laughs> no, it's pretty manageable. I mean, if that's well, all you do full time and you got sure. the geographic behind you. Um, yeah. And we've got a network of people out there who, who, um, who know what the world zoos have. Mm -hmm. I'm swapping emails last night with Jim Sanderson, who's a small cat specialist, the small cat specialist. And, um, you know, he just knows where everything is. And so when you have friends like that, that can really help you hone in on where to go, it does become manageable. We see a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, right before the shutdown, I was in, I was in England and then Germany and we had got, we were going to, we just wanted to do, you know, two, three weeks in England doing uh, mainly waterfowl and amphibians. Mm -hmm. And we looked through England's biggest and best zoo inventories. And there were very few that we needed. And I was like, oh, holy wow. cow, we're actually accomplishing this. We're actually getting there. So that's incredible. The, yeah. The last 5,000 or so, we're going to have to go a lot farther to get fewer. And it's going to take lo a long time, probably mm -hmm. take as long as it's taken to get the first 10. But then we'll be um, done. And, um, you know, hopefully the world will pick this up and run with it. You know, my job is to create the body of work and then give it to the world. And we'll we'll see if people want to care about something other than politics and celebrity. We'll see. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that there's an interesting thing that's happening. And I'm hoping that this isn't um, only secondary to the COVID-19 pandemic, but is, you know, has to do with kind of where we are in, in our lives right now and where the globe is in terms of um, just... Uh, maybe, maybe the pandemic is really a mirror for a lot of people, but I'm noticing in a lot of my social feeds when you can get through the noise, it is hard when you're looking at, um, at uh, you know, science writing in general. It's almost exclusively pandemic focused right now. But mm. when you can dig through that, I notice that conservation and uh, climate change and, you know, uh, deforestation, habitat loss, these issues are like at the very top of the agenda. It's what people are writing about and it's what people are wanting to read about. Um, Good. Good. I, and and yeah. I think that, you know, with bringing it to life. You know, I'm, I'm often reminded of like Carolyn Porco pushing really hard to make sure that there were cameras on these, on the Juno um, missions, you know, that you've got to be able to see things in order for those things to resonate for people. If they're not able to really appreciate them kind of in, in full detail and full color, it's, it's much more distant and it's much harder to grasp. And of course, that's really what the photo art does is it brings these wild creatures into people's living rooms. It puts them on their coffee tables. It puts them on their desktop and laptop computers on their iPhones. And in such graphic detail, I, I have to ask, was there early on any pushback about seeing them sort of out of context, as you mentioned, on a on a white psych or on a black background, kind of this stark, I don't know how big it is, a naked mole rat is the same as a gorilla to me. Was there any sort of pushback about that being quote unquote, like unnatural? Or no, you know, geographic, uh, geographic ran James Baylog's pictures that were studio portraits like this of animals um, mm. called a personal vision of vanishing wildlife, I think in 86. Mm. And um, and then Susan Middleton and David Litchwager were real trailblazers, still shoot 
uh, very well. So is Baylog. All of them are still active. And they've, they've all done work like this. I'm not the first, won't be the mm-hmm. last, you know. Um, I might be the most uh, obsessive compulsive in terms <laughs> Maybe of just, the most prolific. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's driven by, it's driven by mental illness. I'm sure, you know, um, but yeah, you know, something that we, we were talking about the pandemic, you know, if mm-hmm. this, this is a global catastrophe for humans, I mean, it's good. It's been good for nature because it yeah. slowed us down and taken the pressure off some, but if this does not change the, <laughs> If this doesn't shut down the the wet markets and the bushmeat markets, I mean, mm-hmm. nothing will, nothing will, because this probably originated from somebody eating wildlife, maybe a bat. They don't know yeah. yet, but but there are or at thousands the very least of, handling it in a way yes, that yeah yeah, they, and there are thousands of viruses locked up waiting to come out at us, and we're lucky this isn't more lethal, a lot yeah. more lethal. So so um. It's not my first time in quarantine either. I think I was quarantined for Marburg, for exposure to the Marburg virus, which is a lot like Ebola. Oh my God, that's um, so scary. You years were supposed ago. to Marburg? Yeah, three weeks. I spent three weeks in a spare bedroom in my house. I remember I had the medevac back. I got a bat poop in my eye walking through the woods outside of that <laughs> cave in, in Uganda. But but the thing is, this this is a bad deal. And it's got the world's attention and it's going to happen again if we don't quit eating wildlife, mm-hmm. catching and eating wildlife. Yeah. So I'm really yeah. hoping that this closes down the wildlife markets. I really do. Gosh, me too. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a really scary situation in places where there just appears to be very little recognition of that Um of that, you know, we were just talking before we started recording about um, David Quammen and the work that he did writing about spillover events and mm-hmm. a lot of the reporting that he's done on. Right. It, it, uh, this is going to keep happening, as you mentioned, and you've actually focused on, you know, several bats and on mm-hmm. the pangolin, you know, these different creatures that seem to be implicated here and mm-hmm. seen them in a really kind of unique way. I'm pretty impressed or I guess um, saddened by the fact that many people probably didn't even know what a pangolin was until they started reading about um, its its potential role in this pandemic. Right. Yeah. And they're amazing too. And they're, they're headed straight for extinction because Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of countries in Asia see their scales as having medicinal value, which they don't. It's just made out of the same stuff as our fingernails and very ancient and, and sweet as can be, you know, and, and just, Oh, just, like no uh, defenses, just oh, like, Oh yeah. They, you know, they just roll up into a ball. Well, mm-hmm. people with dogs just go out at night and find them and just pick them up by their tails and throw them into a sack and take them away. And they're, they're just one of the mo- most amazing looking mammals you'll ever see. What a shame. What a shame, you know? And, but I, I keep thinking, okay, we'll have months to sit and think, do we want to do everything the same way as before? We want to hate yeah. each other. We want to fight with each other all the time. We want to just, we want to just go about trashing nature as hard and fast as we can every single day, clear cut it all, plow it all, overfish everything. Is that how it's going to be? I mean, I yeah. I hold out great hope that we can be better than that to each other and to nature when this all eases up. I mean, if we if we're not better than that, um, we're never going to change. You know, so that doesn't mean we'd stop doing the work. And I'm inspired constantly by the wildlife heroes I meet 
working in conservation, whether they're doing captive breeding in zoos or they're working for the local Audubon chapter or grantee for National Geographic. I meet people all the time that that are just doing this because it's the right thing to do. And they're not mm-hmm. thinking about what the world's going to look like in 20 or 50 years. They're just doing it now, all they can, the best they can. And, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do too. But um, yeah. I'm, ve- I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of naive. I have this hope that people will be better to each other, you know, because it's such a shared experience, this, this yeah. sitting it out. At least, I mean, at least in the short term, you know, I, I, I have to ask because of the timing of the book launch, you know, it was there a conversation that was, I mean, obviously there would have been, but it did, it just happened to be that everything was finished now and you decided let's just do it. Or was there any concern about this coming out in the middle of this global pandemic or did you think, Hey, we just, no, we just, no, we didn't see it coming. I mean, not, not imminently. No, we just, we just, every, Seems like every twenty five hundred species or so, starting at five thousand, mm-hmm. we do a book. So yeah. we'll do another one next year based on the this this you know ten thousand species. All all the all the pictures are different in each one, and um, you know it's 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 just part of what we do and part of the geographic giving the project lift and caring about mm-hmm. it, and um, you know trying to save species, trying to trying to get the world to pay attention. People don't know what to do, but I think that they do care. They just have to know that number one, there's a problem, and number two, that they can address it. And and the other thing is, people shouldn't worry about trying to save the whole world. You know, they should they should think about trying to save what's in their own backyard. For example, you notice people people eat organic and brag about that and pay extra money for that, but then they'll pour chemicals all over their lawn. They'll they'll poison their lawn in the sake of green grass. Mm-hmm. One of our big pushes is to help save pollinators. You got to quit pouring poison on your lawn. It ends up in the water. Other people drink right. it. Animals drink it. And that includes fertilizer. Nothing on your lawn. Nothing. Don't even water your lawn because the native plants will grow that should be there. And you won't have to mow as often. You won't throw carbon into the air. Um, plant a pollinator garden. We've done so not only at our house, but also at our business, at our office. Um Plant a vegetable garden, less carbon needed because you're not paying somebody to truck tomatoes to you, you know? Right. Um, Insulate your home. That pays money every month. As soon as it pays for itself, our insulation in our home paid for itself in about three and a half months. And then we've been making money ever since. Um, Reduce, reuse, recycle what you buy, drive a smaller car, drive it less. Tell other people how you feel and that the environment does matter to you whatever you can do to reduce your carbon footprint, eat less meat. Mm-hmm. Just there's tons of things we can do and, and it makes you feel good, you know, like, and it'll make you healthier. It'll put money in the bank. There's no reason not to, we've got, we know what we need to do. It's just, um, we have to just step up and do it. And it's not a hardship. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. So much of it does really feel almost like a lack of mindfulness, kind of a, well, let's just continue the status quo, because there is this very strange American, maybe, or maybe I should broaden that and say Western um, mentality of kind of like, okay, here's my homestead. I'm going to rip out everything that existed before, build my nice, neat, manicured and sterile area and make it look exactly how I want it to look, regardless of the fact that these things like never 
were capable of growing here before. Mm -hmm. Like even the idea of a lawn, living in LA, it's actually a rarity to see lawns because of, you know, so many droughts that we've dealt with. A lot of people have moved over to desert scaping. Um, But it's such an, an odd thing to me, this idea of like planting a lawn and then putting sprinklers on it and mowing yeah. it and yeah, keeping the, it all perfectly manicured. Right. The ornamental lawn. I mean, uh-huh. you, think about, you think about the real estate that we could get for wildlife if we eliminated the ornamental lawn and went back to native plants, especially nectar bearing plants. And, mm. and also if we change the mowing cycles on highways. Just right. in terms of ground, the benefits for insects and ground nesting birds. I know that they have to mow those those right of ways for highways, the shoulder areas, basically, to keep woody vegetation down. I get that. Mm. But they don't have to do it right in the middle of nesting season, and they could do it a lot less frequently. And it would save a ton of money for taxpayers by not keeping it looking like a golf course all the time. Right. Yeah. The little uh, things we could do that would save people a lot of money. And money seems to do all the talking. So great. Look at how green, how how green and money go hand in hand. And I will say it does feel a bit like during this pandemic, I'm noticing just, you know, anecdotally looking at my Instagram feed at people I know personally, and maybe these people are a little more mindful about this anyway, but I'm noticing a lot more like backyard birding and a lot just people are, are more present in their homes and they're noticing that there is wildlife just outside, regardless of if they live deep in a rural area or in the most urban environment you can imagine, they're noticing how a Live, uh, their homes are outdoors. Right. I have friends in New York City and one in Lisbon, Portugal, and they're saying for the first time they can actually hear birds singing because the traffic noise is down. They can see blue sky uh, because the pollution's down. I always wondered what LA would look like if cars quit running. And oh, I've not been there since, but I've seen the pictures and it's, it's you know, the skies are blue. So, oh, I live on, I live in a three-story like townhouse with a roof deck. So I'm on the fourth floor when I'm upstairs. And I was reading my book the other day when the sun was coming up with my little puppy and we passed out and I woke up to a hummingbird a foot above my head, just like hovering. And I was and like, there's a hummingbird this? up here. This is what in LA, city? in the middle of LA. Really? That's yeah. great. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, you know, there, and I've always see hummingbirds and I always see wildlife in certain pockets of LA, but mm-hmm. the fact that they're feeling like they're looking around in people's gardens and they're feeling more comfortable to, to come back home, I think right. is a big right. part of it. And that's so important. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And it's not to diminish the suffering people are going through physically and economically at all. But I just hope that once we get through this, we can be better, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. what that's what I hope. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, the science journal Nature. I know that you know how important it is to stay up to date on the latest in global science research and news. And of course, Nature is the world's foremost international weekly scientific journal. They just celebrated their 150th anniversary last year. They've been publishing science research and the latest discoveries in science since November 1869. And of course, Nature doesn't just publish landmark papers, but they publish award-winning news, leading commentary, and expert 
expert opinion on important and topical scientific news, just like COVID-19. And I know everybody wants to be able to keep up to date with the most recent COVID news. When you subscribe, you're going to get 51 weekly print issues and online access to current issues and archived issues as far back as 1997. So listen up because I've got a special offer just for you. You get to stay up to date on the latest peer-reviewed research news and commentary in science and tech at 50% off the original price. And all you've got to do is visit go.nature.com nerdy to subscribe. You'll get 50% off your yearly subscription at go.nature.com nerdy. All right, everyone, let's get back to the show. To kind of come back to the work that you've been doing, I, I, during the pandemic, have you had to just kind of halt or because you're working with zoos, which of course they're still having to operate, they're just not open to the public. Are you able to still go in and take some photographs? No, no um, it's too early for that yet. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So it just kind of all came to a full stop. Mm-hmm. I think I photographed a crayfish one day that a biologist friend of mine brought over here. Yeah, and then took it back to the lake where he found it. But we're once it warms up, it's been unusually cool. But once it warms up for a few days, we'll start doing prairie insects, invertebrates mm-hmm. here, and also some aquatics. Um, so I built a you know a nice network of people that are really good at identifying certain types of insects. We've got a moth expert, a grasshopper expert, Katie Dids, um, stick insects, ants, spiders. So we'll we'll start in and we'll we'll keep going and add more invertebrates, which is always a good thing. It should be mm-hmm. in the photo arc. We should have more invertebrates than anything else, but we don't uh, because we tend to go for the stuff that's big and and uh, furry, you know, yeah, or yeah. beautiful and feathered. So we'll we'll start in he- here again. But um, yeah, everything kind of came to a stop. Got back from from Germany and uh, and England. Went to Santa Fe to give a talk, which got canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I was out there uh, and uh, turned around, came back and and that was it. Mid-March, that it, it, everything stopped, but it stopped for the whole world and we're all in this kind of together. So trying to make the most of it. I'm getting some deferred maintenance done on my house. It's been 23 right. years of putting it yeah. off. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's all right. I mean, we're, we'll, we'll make it through, you know, it's just, there's a lot of suffering going on. I know there is. Mm-hmm. And we, we talk about nature a lot, but you know, I, I, I watched a 60 Minutes piece with uh, Bill McKibben was part of it. And he talked about how, you know, once we get through the pandemic, we still have climate change to pay attention to. And and we we are moving more and more away from fossil fuel and going more towards solar and wind. And that's great. It just it takes a long time to to change and to and to start doing things in a different way. And. Dennis Dimmick, who was one of the great minds that worked for the magazine, he was a photo editor there. He did a lot of um, environmental stories. He said, true change is generational, Joel. you got to be patient. Well, for a lot of animals, they don't have that kind of time. He's right, though. I mean, true change is 20 to 25 years, and then all of a sudden it goes and it becomes widely accepted. And so I'm just, I just need to uh, be a little bit more patient, but I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. I want to see well, things I, fixed right now. 
I can't imagine how difficult it must be to, you know, you've been working on this project now well over a decade. And so to be able to have the opportunity to be in such close proximity to such powerful, um, sometimes powerful, sometimes very meek, but, but you know, incredibly um, uh, unique creatures. And then, you know, have any of them actually gone extinct or become more critically endangered, like just during the process of doing oh, yeah. the photo art? Yeah. yeah, we probably lost into extinction, 10 or so, nine or 10 Ugh. extinction just in the, I've been doing this 15 years and I imagine we've lost close to a dozen, maybe 10 uh, small stuff, you know, but, but if you look at the Northern white rhino, there's two left, a mother and daughter in a pen in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, uh, I don't know. There, there's, there's so many. It's hard to even put your finger on it. There's, there's lots of things that are going down the drain. But, but the nice thing is, this could be turned around. We just have to make the world aware of it. Um, yeah. And, and I'm very inspired by, you know, just animals like the California condor. Uh, it's made a comeback thanks to people who cared. The black-footed ferret, the Mexican gray wolf, uh, all these, all these animals got down to fewer than two dozen. And they're stable now. They're not out of the woods, but they're stable because wow. people cared and stepped up and to save them. So I'm always hopeful. I know that we're going to lose some more species to extinction. It's kind of inevitable. And I meet I meet a few animals like that a month when I'm really out shooting pretty heavy. But it doesn't have to be catastrophic. And and see, this is the problem: is that if we lose if we lose too many, we just don't know what the tipping point is to where we're not able to function anymore, or at least function in a way where the earth is pleasant. We just don't know where that is. And we can't keep throwing away the parts, not knowing what they do. Right. Most people, though, they don't put that together because their food comes from the grocery store and they're really, really involved. I mean, rapidly involved in politics, sports, you know, religion, celebrity, Whatever their thing is, they're really involved in that and they can't see that the world's getting hotter, the storms are getting more violent, the droughts are getting more extreme, the flooding events are more extreme. These are the things that we we really do have to stop and think about and setting aside vast tracts of habitat to stabilize the Earth's climate. The reason yeah. that folks like me get all riled up about the Amazon burning is because those rainforests around the equator they not only cool the planet, but they, but they also regulate rainfall that we get here in Nebraska to grow crops. You know, we have to have specific amounts of rains at specific times, pretty much through the year, to pull off crops. And man, if we if we disrupt the rainfall cycles because we cut all the rain for us, it's it's going to be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. So so it's just you know i'm i'm a bit like a guy standing at the end of a bridge waving my arms the bridge is out don't drive d- slow down stop yeah but um you know we we shall see you know we shall see i don't i don't know what's going to happen i just know that we do we do the best we can with what we've got right this minute you know well and That's i think such a, it's all we can do but such an important part of that is just awareness right it's it's we like we mentioned before it's this this mindful living this this um it's it's easy to ignore things when you are completely in the dark about them but when they're in front of your face and when you become aware of them especially things that exist 
half a world away. And, you know, we talked earlier about the way that you do these portraits in the photo work project, which is that they are against a black or a white background. It's a very stark, you know, they're like well lit. There's a stark kind of difference. Um, and you also often take video. So even though we're looking at still photography in your books and with your prints, um, you know, there's access to a lot of video online. Um, not only does it kind of change scale, you know, so that a, a tiny little insect is the same size in a print because it fills the frame as a as a mountain gorilla, but it also, I think, brings organisms that we don't think of generally as charismatic organisms right, right. into the same realm. That's right. right? It does. Yeah. And that's a and tall that's order with things that don't have eyes, like jellyfish, coral, sponges, <laughs> yeah. you know. But yeah, it, it tried it. We try to give an equal voice, like the gun of the old west. It's the great equalizer. Lack of sight. <laughs> yeah. right? So we we have to um, we really have to to think about the small creatures with equal respect. Mm -hmm. Everybody pays attention to lions and zebras. But yeah, things but, with teeth um, and things with fur for some mm -hmm. reason people and big just eyes that we can big identify eyes. with because we're mm -hmm. primates and we're really into eye contact. Yeah. But I'm telling you, the ants really rule the world. They do. And mm -hmm. beetles and other insects. And it's it's really not a good thing to ignore them. You've read yeah. about the insect apocalypse, the lack Absolutely. of insects. Yeah. So it's it's just a um it's absolutely critical that people start to think about <sighs> slowing down on the use of insecticides, setting aside prairies, for example, where I live, where insects can thrive because they literally bring us fruits and vegetables. I don't know. I don't know what we've got to do to get people to understand that and, and, and to, to drag them along <laughs> to the realization that if the earth's healthy, we can make it. We'll be healthy too. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a tough one, isn't it? But but I I don't know. I think about this quote, this T.S. Eliot quote all the time. He said, for us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. So this is this project's going to take me till the very end of my life. I'll be about, I don't know, over 70 by the time I'm done. And so we tried. We we worked. By we, I mean my staff and my family and I, we worked and we got got this done. And then what the world does with it, that's kind of their business. Hopefully, they'll be smart enough to pay attention to what some of these animals are saying. But you can't doom half of everything to extinction and think that people will be just fine. It, it won't work that way. Um, people are, in the end of the day, they're driven by greed and fear. It's, it's a lot better for them to be greedy, to want to live a, the life that they have lived in terms of a stable climate and enough food to eat than to be fearful because they've run out of everything. It's yeah. a lot better way to live is to just teach people, just educate them, you know, and, and uh, I'm hopeful that it will work out. But for what I can, I'm doing all I can do. I, I just would encourage people to think about what they can do. Maybe it's just find an issue you care about. Maybe it's homelessness or food ish insecurity issues. I don't know. Find something you care about and really work on that for a number of years and try to make the world better for you having been in it. That's, that's not so hard, really. It's very, it's and it's a great so way hard, to live. But not many people can say that they've done that. It's true. Like, and you know, whether your career allows you to make it part of what you're, you know, the way that you make money or beyond that, it's something that you do, 
um, I shouldn't say on the side, but as a passion project that, you know, is separate from your career. Um, gosh, wh- how else do you kind of get that deep fulfillment? I, ca- I can only imagine that you are able to go to bed at night, although probably tormented by oftentimes the deep understanding that you know about, you know, the way that our ecology is just in shambles right now. But at mm-hmm. the same time, at least when you go to bed at night, you must know that like you said, you're doing everything you can. Like, I, I can't imagine that you as a human being have a lot of regrets because oh, of the work some, that you do. Some, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think like everybody, I wish I'd done a few things differently, but in terms of the this project, my biggest regret is that I didn't start it 10 years earlier because there are a lot of animals that were kept in captivity that are no longer kept, like hoofed stock, uh, ungulates, antelope, mm-hmm. deer, that kind of thing. Um, but it's in terms of what I can do, I always think that I can do more than I'm doing and wish that I could do more. I, I try to do everything I can. I already work. 80 or 90 hours a week, you know, but it's, see, this it's, pandemic is good for you because now you're, you're experiencing what it means to not work 80 I guess so. But, but, um, I just think everybody has it in them to do good. And it's, and it's very, it's a very refreshing thing. It's good for you to know that you've done well by somebody else. Like you've helped, you've helped ease suffering or you've helped make the planet better. I just, if people knew that it, what it felt like, I think more of them would do that. Yeah, but, there is really a symbiosis, like a reciprocity there. It's, it's You feel good from it, not just the cause right. that you're working toward. I also had parents that were very good to me and cared about the natural world and told me that I could, that I could do anything I wanted to in life if I applied myself and didn't give up. And I believed them. Mm-hmm. I was just a guy from a middle-class family in Ralston, Nebraska, you know. But I, was, I always thought it was amazing uh, what geographic did. And I always wanted to work for him. So it's, I'm just saying, if you're persistent, anything's possible, but you have to be, you can't give up. That's the, that's the big thing. A lot of, uh, people have, you know, ambitions of being a photographer for a living or whatever, a writer. And I always say, great, be persistent because it's going to be a long time to get on that path. But if you become, if you really specialize and become an expert in something, your odds go way up. If you're the person everybody goes to for advice or, or asking, um, you know, how to go about this, what this, what this part of the earth or these creatures within it are all about, um, your, your odds of, uh, making it exponentially go up. Everybody right. dabbles in photography. Now everybody's got a smartphone. There's a billion pictures a day posted to the web, something like that. Um, but it's, but if you're if you're a specialist and you really have a story to tell and you can tell it well, or or in the case of these small animals, really understand what the kinds of things they need. And this is what people that study these animals tell us they need. I'm not an expert. I, I pass along what experts tell me to the world. Um, then that's that's doing that's doing pretty good, you know. Wish we could do more of it and you know, it but time runs out on everybody and it'll run out on me eventually, but I've still got another, I don't know, 15 years to go on this thing. And then, and then that'll be it. And we'll hopefully be done. 
So I, I would love to like kind of ask you just a few things about the logistics of the work that you do for, you know, um, for the photo arc and well, I guess really now um, mostly for the photo arc. So you mentioned your team. Um, and, and one thing that I have to say that I love about the, the new photo arc book that was just put out, um, but in addition to some others that I've seen, like I have the collective the very collectible book that's like um, all birds and I love it so much. Um, But one thing that I love about this is that it's not just these beautiful portraits, although it is mostly these beautiful portraits, there's a fair amount of information included. And there's even a section that's all about kind of behind the scenes. And I love seeing how you actually capture (laughs) these images because I think in our head, it's very easy to go, Oh, look, um, a tapir. Oh, look, a gorilla. That Yeah, he just took a picture and moved on. But it's kind of a goat rodeo, isn't it? Like sometimes it's not <laughs> to get these images. Yeah, it's a goat rodeo sometimes. But <laughs> <laughs> I never heard it put quite like that. That's nice. I might use that. Is that okay? Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, I tell you, it's, it is a lot less drama filled than you'd imagine. We, we go to a lot of effort to, to talk to zoos ahead of time, aquariums, wildlife rehabbers, they know what to expect. We're working with animals that are born and raised in human care, a lot of them at zoos, and they really know what their animals' personalities are like. And and um, we're working safely at all times. We work really quickly, especially with birds, to reduce stress. And, and so we don't want surprises. Um, sure. Do the animals always enter the room that they've painted white or black? No. No, sometimes <laughs> they don't. <laughs> but, you know, um, a lot of animals are food mo- motivated, myself included. And so they'll come in for a treat. And especially if they're used to the room ahead of time, uh, way before I get there, they just mm-hmm. they just think they're coming to have lunch. And they are, but I'll take their picture while they're in there. So so it's it's not as much of a mess as, or a goat rodeo, as you would say. <laughs> it, it's really not. It's um, it's. Um, Pretty measured and controlled, and above all, I'm proud to say, fast. We want to okay. get done really quickly. Like with a lot of birds, it's two or three minutes on black, two or three minutes on white, and they're out. So we're we're not we're not spending all day. Uh, you know, average number of pictures shot, I imagine, is a dozen on each color, twelve maybe. It's not paparazzi. It's not bang bang bang. It's just <clears throat> try to get one of them looking right, looking left, full body mm-hmm. and a face shot and then move on. So it's, it's really, it's really kind of uh, quiet compared to being a field photographer where you get chased by a grizzly bear or, or an elephant once in a while. It's, <laughs> it's not, it's just not what you'd think, you know, and, and mostly we just want to get done so that we can get on to the next one. There must be, though, sometimes creatures that you, you know, if it's your first experience in the room with a particular organism where their behavior maybe surprises you, where they don't move the way you thought they would move or they don't, their vocalizations Mm -hmm. sound, you know, incredible. Have you ever been really just like taken aback by an animal, like to the extent that you needed a moment to recalibrate before you started, um, taking those photos. Yeah. You know, that guinea, the 10,000 species, it was, um, it was vocalizing. It was purring mm-hmm. like real high pitched and it didn't sound like any cat I'd ever heard. And I asked and he said, yeah, nobody's heard this. We're publishing oh, this wow. for the first time through you. Um, nobody's ever had to voc- had a cat that vocalized in captivity because they were all wild caught hit after being hit by cars or caught in snares. And so they just weren't in the mood. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of experiences that, you know, I'll never forget that they had the very last rabs fringed limb tree frog at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And um, he, I was photographing him and he hopped, he hopped up on my hand on top of my camera. And he's the oh, very wow. last one. Oh and Mark gosh. Mandica, who who started the Amphibian Foundation in Georgia, not long after that, he, um, yeah, he just grabbed him gently with his little gloved hand, and you know, we were wearing latex gloves and put him back. But thinking the the weight of this is enormous. Like to tell this animal story, will I remember him well enough? This frog, because he's going, they're going to be extinct, and he's the last one. Will I remember this mm-hmm. well enough and tell this story well enough to justify? you know, my little interruption of his life and, and to carry on his memory. You know, we did a little video and we did stills and it doesn't feel adequate enough, but I, I get this, I got the same type of feeling when I first snorkeled in a salmon, a spawning stream for salmon, for sockeye Mm. salmon in British Columbia. I dipped underneath the wet. You could see there was activity. You couldn't really see it. So I, I put on a dry suit and I, it was for a story on Clackwit Sound, British Columbia for the, for the magazine the moment I dipped my head under the water and I could see all these bright red fish and they were spawning and fighting and they were all around me and they were massive. This is something that's epic, irreplaceable. It's been going on since time began, a lot bigger than me in terms of mm-hmm. its significance. And, um, you know, it's, it's an honor. It's a big honor and it's a responsibility and it also makes me realize, because I could see the end of my life at the beginning of the project. I knew it would take till I died almost, um, that um, we're all just passing through and that the world will go on. In fact, that's that's what astounded me with the pandemic is that I was so absorbed in the news of that. And would the grocery stores run out of food and all these things, right. you know, um, that I remember going out to get my recycle container at like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, unshaven and in my bathrobe. This was a month ago. And, and you know, the sun came out. It had been cloudy for a week. Sun came out, and I looked down, and my hedges were starting to green up. And I just stood there and thought. And then the, there was a cardinal singing nearby, and Robin was chasing worms, and flowers were pushing up. And it made me think, oh, yeah, you know, nature doesn't know or care that there's a pandemic. Nature's yeah. right on time. And nature will will thrive when this is over with, but will we, you know? Yeah, nature, nature will, will thrive when we're over with. Yeah, that's um, what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, when we're over, nature will thrive. But, you know, it's it's kind of comforting in a way, you know? Willa Cather wrote once that, you know, she, she talked about death and she just said, well, nature has other work for you to do, as in your body nourishing the prairie again. And... um that's kind of comforting to me. I just see us as passing through and why not be nice to other people? Why fight? Yeah. Why not be courteous? Why not help people out? I, and I see in Nebraska, um, just in terms of day to day, I see people not as in a hurry, more kind, visiting with each other, kids playing outside for a change because their parents can't stand them inside anymore. <laughs> I see, I see people driving uh, more courteously, not honking their horns very much. And and if you get to an unmarked intersection, people going out of their way to let the other person go first. I see a really good side of humanity in a lot of places. Um, I'm sorry it took a pandemic to get us there. 
and I just hope that the good part, the good parts of our nature succeed and last, that we don't just take, that we don't just take everything for granted as much, you know, we shall oh, see, huh? Absolutely. You know, and it's funny because I, I knew that I'd be having you on the show and that we would be talking about your photography work and that we'd be, be talking about, um, about the newest photo arc book. But of course, I should have known, but maybe didn't expect that there would be so much conversation about humanity, you know, because there is this deep interplay between the human um, experience and the human drive to extract and to innovate and to, in many ways, destroy. But there's a flip side of that. And I think it's perfectly um, uh, kind of tied to the very human experience to support and to to love and to um you know empathize right right i mean it clarifies the mind somewhat mm -hmm. so it's um it's kind of up to us where we go from here because we'll get through this a lot of people will be financially ruined of course uh it's it's really hard on everybody economically myself yeah. included but it's we will get through this it's just a matter of what do we want to be when the curtain's lifted? What kind of actors do we want to be on the world stage? I think um, right. I think we should be kinder above all else. We should be more noble, more forgiving, and more eager to help each other. And um, that's how we're gonna. That's how we see it. How we're gonna play it. And um, you know, life is so short that it makes you. It really just makes you appreciate everything. We appreciate things more than ever, and we were pretty appreciative family. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, onward onward we go, you know. I appreciate you taking the time to to interview me today. That's nice of you. Oh, no, I appreciate you taking the time. I know that you've been doing a lot of different interviews and I'm sure you're exhausted, so I appreciate you hanging in there with us. You know, Joel, before I close every episode, I do ask my guests the same two last questions. And I can kind of imagine a little bit maybe the the um general theme of what your answers will be, but I don't want to take that from you. So, I would love it if you were willing to um to illuminate for us um, your thoughts on these two kind of big picture questions. Okay. You cool with that? I'm ready. All right. I'm ready. All right. So when you think about the future, as you often do, especially in your work, um, I'd love for you to tell us, one, what is the main thing of, of the many things that keeps you up the most at night, the thing that you are most concerned, worried, maybe even a little pessimistic or cynical about. But then on the flip side of that, you know, what is the thing that you are genuinely um, and authentically optimistic about? You know, what are you actually looking forward to? Well, in terms of negativity and often, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night most of the time is what I've got to do the next day. And the fact that I didn't get as much done that day as I wanted to. I'm always disappointed. Hmm. I should make yeah. smaller lists of things. So I wouldn't <laughs> be, you know. Um, in terms of of positives, in terms of just what what I look forward to, is that what you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like what are uh, you? Yeah, exactly. What are you optimistic about? What are you looking I, forward? I to? I love dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I really like my wife's cooking, so I bug her a lot. So much so that she asks if I could go live in a barn sometimes. Like oh, whatever you, you know, yeah. she loves it. She loves no, it. So wait, 
Tell me, what's your what's the best dish? What do you look forward to the most? Well, like, what's your birthday a dinner? With her homemade garlic bread that is to die for, man. And yeah, oh, it's so good. See, we, we have kind of a traditional marriage. She always wanted to stay home and she wanted to have kids and 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 cook. And and that was very similar to how I grew up. And I always wanted to go out in the world and don't know how to cook. We've tried that, right. it doesn't work. So I look forward to that. I love it when our, our three kids are around and they're all in Lincoln, so we see them often. I like to do catch and release fishing. I'm a huge fan of that. And um, uh, we have a little pond out in the country. We've planted, we've planted native grass and wildflowers around it. We planted three burr oak trees out there yesterday. My 16-year-old and, and I went out to plant these three burr oak trees, which is a native tree. Mm -hmm. And, um, we are just, you know, I just, I just enjoy every day I can get out in nature. Um, extremely, I don't know. I'm extremely happy to be out. I'm happy to be living in Nebraska where I don't have a, um, where I don't have to be on top of everybody. Like, like if I were in a densely populated city, so I'm very yeah. glad that we have a pasture we can go to and we can fish a little bit or we can watch the birds. We can have a little campfire. Um, I'm, I'm just very that. grateful for, I'm very grateful for every day. I'm grateful yeah. that my wife survived cancer. I'm grateful, uh, for everything. So I, I've always had a very positive attitude and I get up every morning, very excited pandemic or not. I get up very excited about what's going to happen today and what will the tide bring in? And so I, I just, have always had a pretty upbeat, optimistic attitude, you know? I mean, I just think this is, if you love the natural world, this is a great time to be in conservation. Not a good time, but a great time because we can reach the whole world at once now. And and it didn't, it wasn't always like this. We'd have to wait a year for something to appear in the magazine. Now we can go mm. directly to people with problems or celebrating celebrating those who have done great things. We can celebrate corporations. We can celebrate people who have done great things and help inspire others to do the same. So I'm excited every day when I get up. I really am. It's, it's, uh, I'm hopeless that way. You know, I've always been, I've always <laughs> been that way. I'm always, I, I like, I like to laugh a lot and I just, I just, um, I'm on it. You know, I'm, I'm trying to play my A game every day and I'm excited and it wears everybody out around me, but that's okay. Like a big I puppy. Love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and here's a way, here's a way that you guys who are listening right now can help because if you go to joelsartori.com, not only will you see all of his incredible work and hear about everything that he's up to, but you can shop in the store where you can get signed copies of his books, you can get signed prints, and of course, those purchases go towards supporting the photo arc. So you can even see the newest book, the photo arc, one man's quest to document the world's animals. And, um, and isn't that right? They could get a signed copy of it. Absolutely. And we can personalize it to them. And, and, uh, and also, you know, every, every image they see, they could get it made as a signed archival print as large as they wanted it to be. And yeah, so uh, yeah cool. we're, we're just more than happy and we appreciate the support. Oh, I love that. I think I might have to do that too. Well, Joel, gosh, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. I really appreciate your very thoughtful questions. Oh, thanks. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Mm -hmm.